Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to tonight's event. Uh, we're very happy to have here today, Sujata Gibla. So just want to make sure that everybody can hear properly and if not, just leave a little note in the chat. What kind of narrative... Um, can you, I'd yeah. like I'd like to say hello to the audience and thank you to Kanchan Toral and Nahid. Uh, I hope that uh, we'll have some interesting session this evening for you. Thank you all for coming. So, what kind of narrative should tell the story of modern India today? I'm very pleased to welcome here to NYU AD Sujata Gidla, author of Ants Among Elephants: An Untouchable Family and the Making of Modern India. Published in 2017, Ants Among Elephants has been described as brilliant, astonishing, unsettling, also Dickensian, Nepalian, a searing account, a poignant review. In reviews published in everything from the Wall Street Journal to Labor Notes, a monthly for unionized workers. Ants Among Elephants is primarily the story of Gidla's maternal uncle, K.G. Satyamurti or Satyam, both modernist poet and Naxal revolutionary, a founder of the People's War Group in the state of Andhra Pradesh, and a guerrilla who lived for long periods underground. Fighting for the liberation of the landless and peasants, Satyam emerges as the figure of political consciousness par excellence. But in telling the story of Satyam's life, as well as that of his heroic sister Manjula and Gidla's mother, Gidla deconstructs something much larger. Traversing left politics and the Telangana struggle, the economic burdens of the household and missionary education, university life in Guntur, and the thrill of revolutionary poetry, the book is a world and a century. In the process of this telling, a new historical agent emerges at every turn, caste. The cause of the assault of an uncle for not wearing the requisite loincloth, the segregation of the village colony, even the teachers, the comp composition of the communist leadership, the failing grades of certain students in the engineering department, cast, 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 cast. Gidla recounts the poignant detail of her grandfather, who in order to shield his children from the terrible reality of their identity, would take a long circuitous path to avoid running into caste people before whom he would be forced to take off their shoes, fold their hands and bend at the waist. Satyam is eventually ousted from the cause to which he devoted his life for the crime of conspiring to divide the people, i.e. raise the caste question. With a kind of relentless moral clarity and a significant amount of research, Gidla is telling the story of her family and is telling India's too. In 2014, the journalist Tana Hisi Coates, in a piece in the Atlantic magazine, made The Case for Reparations for African Americans. In the article, he traced the story of one family, land lease, sharecropping, conscription, World War II, homeownership, child rearing, education, all the constitutive elements of the life. In all of them, there is first slavery, then the color line, and then the specter of race. In the story of one life, one family, Ants Among Elephants tells the story of class radicalism inflected by caste, marriage politics inflected by caste, young love, elections, student politics, all inflected by caste. It's difficult to underestimate the extent to which this story has been occluded, particularly in English, where almost everything we read about India is caste-free. 
For so long, India's national allegory, the glass in which it mirrored itself and showed itself to the world, might have been said to be formed by the triangulation of Nehru's Tryst with Destiny speech, Bollywood film, and Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. In Gidla's book on August 15, 1947, Satyam watches the pageantry of independence. A girl dressed up as a Lambadi, a member of an impoverished tribe in Andhra whose traditional costumes, like those of gypsies in the West, are remarkably colorful and ornate, won the first prize. Would a real Lambadi woman get this admiration? Satyam asks himself as the girl, the darling daughter of a rich Hindu family, got up before the applauding audience to receive her prize. A short, dark boy asks Satyam a strange question, one that Satyam has no answer to. Do you think this independence is for people like you and me? In reading this book and its zigzag across villages, towns, and decades, I was reminded of the night's move. This is Russian formalist critic, the Stifter Shlovsky's of history, of literature, of language. Like the knight in chess with his telltale L-shaped route, history moves in jagged roundabout waves, left then forward, right then back, never from father to son, he says, but from uncle to nephew. And ants among elephants, it's from the uncle to the niece, and Gidla as a young woman, though too slight to hold a weapon, takes up the radical cause. After protest, imprisonment, torture, life curves again, and Gidla takes up residence in America, where she currently works as a subway conductor for the MTA. In a New York Times piece printed last year, she wrote of the city mandate of essential workers during the height of the pandemic, we are not essential, we are sacrificial. The problem, of course, is that the road to the construction of a new narrative, the correction of a dominant historiography, is paved with risk. If you are educated like me, she writes, if you don't seem like a typical untouchable, then you have a choice. You can tell the truth and be ostracized, ridiculed, harassed, even driven to suicide, as happens regularly in universities. Or you can lie. If you get them to believe your lie, then of course you cannot tell them your stories, your family's stories. You cannot tell them about your life. It would reveal your cast, because your cast is your life and your life is your cast. How incredible for us that Gidla decided to do just that. Welcome, Sujata. So, Sujata, thank you, Toriel. <laughs> I jumped the gun, uh, but mm-hmm. thanks for the, the lovely introduction. Uh, and uh, let's begin then. Yeah, I think Sujata will begin by um, giving us a bit of a reading from her book, and then we'll have a conversation and open to questions with all of you. Okay, so the first one is from the introduction from the beginning of the book. Uh, I appear only in two parts, in introduction and afterward. Uh, So this is from the introduction. My stories, my family's stories, were not stories in India. They were just life. When I left and made new friends in a new country, only then did the things that happened to my family, the things we had done, become stories, stories worth telling, stories worth writing down. Uh, I was born in South India in a town called Kazipet in the state of Andhra Pradesh. I was born into a lower middle class family. My parents were college lecturers. I was born an untouchable. When people in this country ask me what it means to be an untouchable, I explain that 
caste is like racism against blacks here in America. But then they ask, how does anyone know what your caste is? They know caste isn't visible like skin color. I explain it like this. In Indian villages and towns, everyone knows everyone else. Each caste has its own special role and its own place to live. The Brahmins who perform priestly functions, the potters, the blacksmiths, the carpenters, the washer people, and so on. They each have their own separate place to live within the village. The untouchables whose special role, whose hereditary duty is to labor in the fields of others are, are uh, fields of others are to do other work that Hindu society considers filthy or not allowed to live in this village at all. They must live outside the boundaries of the village proper. They're not allowed to enter temples, not allowed to come near sources of drinking water used by other castes, not allowed to eat sitting next to a caste Hindu or to use the same utensils. There are thousands of other such restrictions and indignities that vary from place to place. Every day in an Indian newspaper, you can read of an untouchable beaten or killed for wearing sandals for riding a bicycle. In your own town or village, everyone already knows your caste. There is no escaping it. But how do people know, know your caste when you go elsewhere to a place where no, no one knows you? There they will ask you, what caste are you? Uh, you cannot uh, avoid this question. And you cannot refuse to answer. By tradition, everyone has the right to know. If you're educated like me, if you don't seem like a typical untouchable, then you have a choice. You can tell the truth and be ostracized, ridiculed, harassed, even driven to suicide, as happens regularly in universities. Or you can lie. If they don't believe you, they will try to find out your caste, true caste, some other way. They may ask you certain questions. Did your brother ride a horse at his wedding? Did his wife wear a red sari or a white sari? How does she wear her sari? Do you eat beef? Who is your family deity? They may even seek the opinion of someone from your region. If you get them to believe your lies, then, of course, you cannot tell them your stories, your family's stories. You cannot tell them about your life. It would reveal your caste because your life is your caste, your caste is your life. Whether they know the truth or not, your untouchable life is never something you can talk about. It was like this for me in Punjab, in Delhi, in Bombay, in Bangalore, in Madras, in Warangal in Kanpur, in Calcutta. At 26, I came to America where people know only skin color, not birth status. Uh, some, have, some here love Indians and some hate them, but their feelings are not affected by a caste. One time in a bar in Atlanta, I told a guy I was untouchable and he said, 
Oh, but you're so touchable. Only in talking to some friends I met here did I realize that my stories, my family stories, are not stories of shame. Thanks. Uh, Thank you so much, Sujata, for this introduction to your work. Yes, I'm going to sort out the mute, mute problem. Um, you know, I think um, the very act of doing this work, of writing this project, as you said, in some ways it came to you in America that there was this kind of interest in your life, in life that was just life, that now could be the source of narrative. And the book is such a complex, interesting book in the sense that it spans so many different spaces and so many different places. And actually, it occupies quite a long time frame chronologically. Uh, I was just wondering, can you tell us a bit more about how you made the decision to, to write the book and what kind of particular story of India you wanted to tell? Yeah. Um, you know, in America, Black people, you know, racism is dependent on you know, what skin color you are, yours is. Uh, but in India, we, we all look similar. Uh, so, um, you know, you don't, growing up, my parents did not talk about caste because it was shameful to them. And so um, I used to think like, why were we being treated in, you know, in this way? Um, is it skin color? But there are dark skinned people in upper castes also. Um, so then I decided it must be my religion, Christianity, because Christians are minority and majority always looks down on minority. And I decided it was because I was Christian that I'm be, being treated like this. But later on, after I grew up, uh, I came to know that there are Christians who are um, who are very wealthy and uh, very powerful and influential and high status, then, you know, my explanation to myself, uh, why, I'm, why, why is this social status like this? Um, I, I was like, so there is no reason for us to be untouchables. Some people randomly become high, high caste and some people randomly become untouchables. There is no reason. That's what I used to think. Um, so I asked these rich Christians, how, uh, what caste are you? And they told me that they're Brahmins. And so I asked, how did you, uh, I mean, how are you Brahmins? And they told me that uh, when St. Thomas, one of the disciples of uh, Jesus Christ, uh, he came to India and he converted 100 Brahmin families to Christianity. So they claim Brahmin caste. Um, and so then I wanted to know what, how did we become Christian? Maybe, uh, you know, I might find out that I was a Brahmin before or something. Um, so um, I wanted, you know, like to find out about caste, the first obstacle is people like my parents feel very, very ashamed of talking about it. So they won't tell us. Um, so I asked my mother, how did we become Christians? 
and then uh, she, the stories began. Uh, their stories were so interesting. Uh, I didn't know that like just two generations ago, my uh, great-grandparents were wearing loincloths, not pants, and living in forests. So it, I was fascinated by it, and I would write them down. And then I realized that it's not fascinating just for me. I should write a book and, you know, let others also read it. Mm. Actually, you know, it's quite interesting, though, just the way you're talking about actually your research, because the book is really quite researched in the sense that you've gone back to find out, you know, what uh, your uncle wrote a paper on and, you know, what, what kind of grades your mother scored during these days. And yeah. of course, the previous generation and the previous generation. And, you know, I was just thinking how important this genre of autobiography, memoir, family autobiography and memoir has been become for Dalit writing in particular. Yeah. In other words, yeah. it's actually the genre by which many people have come to know of the caste question. Yeah. And many Dalits have come to, uh, you know, understand things more clearly by writing that. Uh, like writing this book enlightened me. Uh, even though I didn't hope to find out, I found out how we became untouchables. I also found out not just our family, how untouchables became untouchables in the first place. Um, so it's, it's like that for me. And uh, there are other writers also um, who went through some confusing kind of ex experience about caste and uh, writing it, it clarified to them, you know, uh, what is it that... Uh, the society thinks of us. Hmm. Um, were there moments from your youth, some of them are in the book, just a, a few of them, in which, you know, you come to a kind of knowledge and understanding of the caste class nexus, or you come to a kind of understanding or re really a sense of clarity about hmm who you are and, you know, your identity becoming very clear to you. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of a moment in which you're reflecting on a film. Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean the film where uh, I realized that not all Christians are poor? Mm -hmm. Is that what you're talking about? Um, you know, uh, I don't, uh, I mean, to for me to come up with some such uh, vision, you know, clear vision. During writing, I can't do it now. But when I was a kid, uh, doctors and scientists say that uh, children can't remember things that happened to them or, you know, before they're four years old. But somehow I do remember, uh, I was younger than four years old. Uh, my mother took me to the railway station where uh, she ran into her uh, colleague and her daughter. And they were uh, talking to each other. And then I started feeling inferior, you know, um, as if uh, uh, all of this talk is about them. You know, uh, they are the main people here. Uh, you know, that kind of a feeling came over me. And I, I still rem I remember somehow, you know. And uh, the second one is... Uh, when I was uh, in uh, REC, 
there was a massacre of uh, 11 untouchables in a village called Karamchedu uh, that really opened our eyes that we can't hide behind education or by becoming Christians, we can't hide. So that's another moment of, you know, making right. things clear for me. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the one of the really important elements that comes out in the autobiography or in this family narrative. And it's kind of put its finger on something so crucial, which is that despite education, despite democratization, mm -hmm. despite all of these elements of upward ability, the you know, upward mobility, rather, you know, the book is punctuated by these moments of caste atrocity. There are many that mm -hmm. come into the fore. I yeah. mean, I, I think... I wonder if that's something you can say more about. Um, if you look at uh, atrocities against Dalits, it skyrocketed after mid-80s everywhere, not just in Andhra, in Punjab, UP, Maharashtra, all those places. Uh, between the time when my parents were going to school and college, and uh, my graduating from uh, REC, we did encounter casteism, uh, but it's not so, you know, blatant and cruel and ruthless like it is now. Uh, it's because um, caste is basically, uh, you know, to support a certain kind of economic system. And uh, things are getting bad in India. Scarcity, lack of jobs, lack of, uh, uh, you know, college seats, all of that, uh, that makes castes to com compete with each other. Uh, it, this kind of scarcity hardens the caste lines. And the brunt of it is felt by the untouchables. Everything that happens, it's because of untouchables. Mm. There, there are actually moments, even in spaces that one doesn't think should actually be the location of this kind of caste violence, where you have the whole range of insult, um, you know, kind of speech, the, the whole range of caste violence that is not always physical. Mm -hmm. but that is objectifying or subjecting. I'm thinking of some mm -hmm. of the stories of the things your mother went through in her classroom and mm -hmm. all of these other elements. Uh, I thought I would ask you a little bit about education in general, because the book in some ways reads as a story of education, you know, from yeah, has to yeah. read... Um, by the missionaries, scholarships, then college entrance, becoming a poet, discovering modernist poetry. The whole story of that is really important to the narrative of this family. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I told the journalist interviewing me that my family, the way things happen for them, education-wise, uh, employment-wise, is like we are driving in a car and just in time, each light is turning green for us, you know? Uh, so the opportunities were there at that time. And we were 
you know, we were able to use them. For example, the missionaries. Um, and in the beginning years after independence, there wasn't so much like, you know, people, you know, in order to get independence, they would say, oh, we're all together in it. We must unite what is caste. We're all one. So that kind of thing that was used in national nationalist movement carried over for a little while after independence. So people still had that kind of like, you know, if not all, some people uh, still had that kind of, you know, idealism that, uh, you know, caste is uh, bad and things like that. And so my mother and uh, uncles and my my father, they were all able to go to, you know, college. Um, and then uh, India has a big, used to have a big public sector. And there were like government schools and government colleges and all of that stuff. And the fees is minimal. So in our generation, we made use of that. Um, and then after our generation, my cousins, who thought like my young, very younger cousins, they thought that, oh, Sujata went to college and she studied this and she got a job and she went to America. Let's do the same thing. And they did it. But they couldn't get anywhere. They didn't get jobs because it's all closed down, you know. Um, and you must have heard about Rohit Vemula, right? Yeah. Yes. Do you want uh, to? His story tells you uh, the state of things for Dalits in universities. Um, that particular university, University of Hyderabad, Every mm. single year, there was one Dalit suicide there from harassment, from uh, mm. the faculty, from classmates and things like that. Um, so I would say that uh, we were lucky in, in, in being there in the time to take advantage of uh, whatever was there. Uh, but it, they, we still faced, un, you know, untouchability. Like when I was in college, I went to Hindi class. I sat in the front row and this girl comes in late to the class and she hovers over me and tells me to get up and go to the back. Hmm. It's during the lecture was going on and she was saying these things, get up and go to the back. Hmm. And I, I said, no, this is my seat. I came here first and I took it. And she says, no, this is my seat. You have to go back. And she was so arrogant that, she didn't mind she was, that, that she was interrupting the class. Um, so I felt that if she's not concerned about disrupting the class, why should I? So I said that I'm going to sit here. But the lecturer turned to me and said, please go sit in the back. Hmm. Uh, so though there are incidents like that, a lot of them. but. Uh, things have become very, very bad now. As for the modern modern poetry, um, I think it all began with his school teacher, Telugu school teacher, who used to make them read from the newspapers and things like that. Uh, that then he thought, like, oh, this is how uh, you know. When I grow up, this is how I would be writing even better. And um, so, in the college. 
uh, he was able to do that. But, you know, um, literature and poetry, they're all reflection of social change. For example, um, uh, before the British left India, uh, Indian writers were discovering novel and that kind of stuff, uh, plays. So that's modern poetry. And then came, because of Telangana armed struggle, uh, a new wave of poetry came. It's called progressive right, uh, poetry. And Sri Sri was the you know, leader of that. Uh, he's the emblem of that. Um, and then the Naxalites came and another kind of poetry school um, came about and they're called uh, revolutionary writers. And mm. so uh, for him, I think like seeing those things happening and reading the poetry uh, in- influenced him and all the poetry he ever wrote was um, revolutionary poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, in that he wrote, you know, it's, it's revolution and guerrillas and a uh, whole lot of violence, but the poems are oddly very, very um, beautiful and, you know, dreamy and things like that. Um, so they say that my uncle uh, ch- changed the way to write poetry for revolutionaries. Hmm. And then after he became involved in the Dalit movement, um, he started writing about caste and untouchability. He wrote this poem that it's, uh, this is history unfolding. Um, And in that poem, all the violence that was perpetrated on untouchables and low castes in Hindu mythology he reverses it. For mm-hmm. example, um, there is a story of uh, a teacher who teaches archery and this untouchable or low caste boy, because he's not allowed to learn, he would just put the master's image in front of him and practices and he becomes better than um, the people that the teacher was um, you know, training. And one day he meets him and uh, he says, you're my Gurudeva and all I, what all I learned is from you. And he says, then why don't you give me a present for your guru? And uh, what can I give you? He says, give, give me your thumb. Yeah, this is the, the brutal story of Ekalavya from the Mahabharata. And of course, without a thumb, what kind of archer can you be? Uh, so, so, Jackson, so this poem is like, uh, you know, reversing the roles of it. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe you can Very read to us um, from the, the story of Satyam's wedding and yeah. um, the kind of rollicking joy of that evening. You know what I found? Uh, there are other people who wrote Dalit writers. They also put this big thing very much like mm. so it's like all over India it seems to be a common thing this uh, eating of pig and uh, the celebration around it uh, 
this is page 151. Uh, it's the wedding day of my uncle in a village. On the morning of the wedding, Manjula was woken by loud cries from the alley next to her uncle Golaya's house in Sankarpadu. She sat up in fright and started praying, Oh, Deva, Jesus, Lord, save us. A cousin of hers sitting nearby put her sorry end to, to her mouth to hide her smile. What, Papa, no need to be scared. They're chasing the pig. When Prasanrao announced his son's wedding to the village, everyone started drooling at the thought of the pig. A wedding in an untouchable colony is a festival, and at the center of the festival is the feast, and at the center of the feast is the pig. As soon as a match is fixed, both the bride's house and the groom's house get hold of a piglet, either buying one in an untouchable market or catching a stray. For weeks, the families raise their pig with great care. A wedding, a wedding pig is no ordinary pig. It must be treated with respect. No one is allowed to talk harshly to it, even if it should get in the way. Hey, watch your mouth. That's the wedding pig. The families feed it as well as they can, giving it starch water left after rice is cooked to drink, or sometimes even cattle fodder. Most untouchable families don't have that kind of uh, food to spare. And the best thing about a pig is that it can feed itself. The staple for pigs in India is what's delicately called malinam, filth. They eat human shit. If the wedding family is too, too poor to feed their pig, it's not a big deal. The pig simply goes around the village eating shit and gets just as fat. Untouchables will often marvel. Shit it may eat, but a pig's meat is the sweetest meat of all. But the announcement of Satyam's wedding meant more than just the prospect of a pig. Prasanarav had risen above the condition of all those he had left behind in Sankarapadu. He was a teacher, not a farmhand. He had lived in cities and towns. Uh, he interacted with caste people, with other educated people, people with jobs. In the eyes of the villagers, he was wealthy. He owned four and a half acres of land. His son was the first ever college-going man from that village. And now that eldest and favorite son was getting married. There would be a lot of pork at this feast. Prasan Rao, it was said, might even get a pig of that exotic new breed. Only a year or two earlier, a new breed of pig had arrived in the country. They are known as Seema Pandalu, European pigs. They came from Russia. Some call them red pigs because their skin is pink and hairless and smooth. They're raised on farms in pens, not let loose in the streets. They're fed a calibrated diet and grow many times fatter and larger than Indian pigs. 
In fact, they seem to have nothing in common with the black, hairy, filthy native pigs. But whenever anyone tries to raise one of these foreign pigs on his own, pretty soon it loses its caste and turns into an ordinary Indian pig. It's pink turning to black, its fat shrinking away as it runs through the streets, wallowing in sewers and swallowing the effluvium. Everyone in Sankarpari looked forward to a tasting of tasting a European pig at Prasan Rao's son's wedding. But Prasan Rao's son had other ideas. When the matter of the pig came up, it pained Satyam to realize that his relatives were so different from his caste friends. He had attended many of his friends' weddings while living in Gudivada. And except for Nancharaya, none of them had served meat. Meat is believed by Hindus to be impure. Brahmins, the purest caste, eat no meat at all, not even fish or eggs. Untouchables, being impure themselves, eat even carrion beef, the flesh of cows that drop dead by the roadside of age or disease, which, since cows are sacred and cannot be slaughtered, is the only kind of beef that falls to human consumption under Hindu law. Middle castes, except for merchant castes, eat meat but never beef, and it is inauspicious to serve any meat at, um, at all at births, funerals, or weddings. Satyam considered it uncultured and even barbaric to eat the flesh of a pig on any occasion. A pig to caste Hindus is a symbol of filth. Untouchables are commonly associated with two creatures, the crow for its blackness and the pig for its foulness. When people assembled under the banyan tree to plan the feast, Satyam told them there would be no pig. The elders took out the cigars out of their mouths. What, what? A wedding feast, a wedding feast with, with no, no pig? Satyam replied, there won't be any meat. They couldn't believe their ears. The most fabulous wedding they would ever attend was turning out to be the worst one they had ever heard of. They wanted nothing to do with it. Men, women, and children turned and went home disappointed. But Satyam was unmoved. Discussion in the village went on for several days. In the end, the elders came to Prasan Rao with a proposal. How about a pig for the village and hence for the having red people, the educated ones. Satyam said, never. Prasan Rao took his son's side. He had stopped eating beef in Vizag when he had to hire his caste for the sake of being allowed to rent a room in the house of a caste Hindu family. And now the very thought of beef was revolting to him. He didn't mind pork himself, but he could understand how his son felt. Instead of a pig, he had brought sacks of vegetables and from some, some kammas whose children he taught in Palaprolu, some strange upper caste flower-based foods, appadams and laddus. The villagers decided to boycott the wedding feast. 
one thing saved the day. Neither Prasannarao nor Sat- Satyam had a say in what the bride's family could or could not serve at their feast on the night of the wedding. Everyone knew Kuntumbarav had already been raising a pig for the last few weeks. Whether Kutumbarov had bought the pig or caught it himself was not clear, but it was a black Indian pig. That was the pig the young men of the village were chasing on the morning of the wedding when they woke Manjula with their cries. Manjula went out to watch the agile young men armed with long, thick sticks and clenching cigars between their molars, running through the village, loincloths pulled tight over their crotches and between their buttocks, their bodies shiny with sweat. One carried a special net. The children of the village, 20, 30 of them, naked, dust-coated, wild-haired, runny-nosed, the girls among them also naked, but for their snail shell anklets and the little silver or copper discs strung around their waists to preserve their modesty. They ran alongside the hunters. Everybody was screaming as loud as he or she could. And the pig was screeching even louder. Wild with fear, it whizzed past the huts like a cannonball, desperate to escape the murderous youths. A cloud of dust rose from beneath its hoofs and the feet of the men right behind it. The pig is chased instead of just being tied down and butchered to save its blood. The blood is what makes it tasty. The idea is to scare the pig with screams and cries and make it run for its life until it collapses from exhaustion. In Sankarpadu that morning, young women and girls admired the muscles rippling beneath the men's glistening brown skin as they wielded their sticks. The women's eyes ran all over the hunters' bodies, taking in the smalls of their backs, their thighs, their chests, their narrow waists, the lips that held their cigars. Each thought fondly how her man ran faster than the rest, how he tackled the pig expertly to the ground. The men were aware the women were watching and they tried their hardest to impress them. The pig ran and ran for half an hour until it could run no more and finally dropped to the ground. One hunter threw his special net over it and the others raised their sticks and beat the animal half unconsciousness. They carried it to the center of the village and tied its snout shut with a rope. They tied its front legs to a pole and stood it up on its hind legs. The dazed pig looked up at the sky. As a piglet grows in size, its neck soon gets so fat that as long as it lives, it is never able to lift its head and look at the sky. But a wedding fake pig, in the last moments of its life, gazes skyward at last. Untouchables will say of an unfortunate man who has lived in poverty all his life, never having had a moment of happiness, but for a small respite at the end, 
when his son gets the job and is finally able to take care of his parents. Vidu Pandilanti Varandi Chachpoy Mundu Akasana Chusadu. This fellow is like a pig. He saw the sky for the first time at the end of his life. On that wedding morning, the man responsible for preparing the pig gently roasted the still living pig and carried it to the bride's house. For lack of a cutting board, they unhinged the front door and laid the pig on it. Two elders, elders Uncle Nalaya and cousin Abednego, were invited to do the honors and carve the pig. A few years before, a Brahmin in Gudivada who worshipped Gandhi had spread the principles of nonviolence among all and sundry, especially the cruel and crude untouchables. One day, he found himself in an untouchable colony where a wedding feast was taking place. Before the man could lay the pig on the door, the Brahmin pushed his way forward and laid himself down in the pig's place. He wept. How can anyone with a heart hurt this voiceless animal? Are you not human? Haven't you heard the teachings of our great spirit Gandhi? He pleaded with the untouchables to cut him up before they could take, it, take a knife to the creation of gods. The youth in that colony, full drunk, pinned the Brahmin down and held a knife to his throat before their elders intervened. The Brahmin scurried off and never tried that again. Good thing, good thing he didn't stay to watch what they did next. If he did, he might have fainted. Manjula herself couldn't bear to watch as the batting cooks separated out the intestines, which would make a tasty saute. Other special parts were carefully removed, the heart, the brain, and the liver. A curry made of, out, of its, out of this is not meant for everyone. A portion is given to the pastor who performs the wedding, and the rest goes to the wedding families. For days, the pig would feed the whole colony. They'd make soup with its bones and curries out of its hooves and testicles. People would swear how divine it is to eat pork fry while drinking. Chicken is nothing, they would say. But the affair of the pig is more than its taste. It's the circus of hunting it, the feats of the men. It's heroic, it's romantic, it's erotic. It's a metaphor. metaphor it's a metaphor, it's rhetoric. It is deeply philosophical, but these are all mere superstructures. At the base, it's economic. Mm. The cheapest meat for the cheapest man on earth. Thank uh, you, you so want much. Me to continue? Yeah, I just want to leave um, time for our audience to ask questions. I, I think this passage, you know, I've noticed that this passage actually comes up, as you say, in many different Dalit texts, but also in many of the readings. There's a lot of interest in this passage. I think the story of the wedding, the story yeah. of community, but also the whole yeah. question of food politics, what education does to traditions and how it interacts yeah. 
<laughs> and then your lovely and very pithy philosophical analysis at the end, <laughs> you know, the cheapest food for the cheapest man on earth. So, so many issues I think are raised in the story of the wedding. Um, you know, I'm wondering, Ganjan has also asked a question and I think I, I want to just remind our audience that they're very welcome to put questions in the box <laughs> and I'll happily put them to our author. Ganjan has asked this question of, you know, how the meaning of caste might have changed across generations and how you experience it quite differently in comparison to your mother or to your grandfather. And you see this illustrated beautifully in the story of the wedding where Satyam, uh, you know, with his education and his high caste friends is also pushing back against what is seen as this very heroic tradition and part of the wedding. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, he may, he might have considered himself communist, mm. but uh, he also looked up to the caste people. It's so deep rooted that he still had that feeling that they're superior to him. And to eat pig in front of them, he felt it's shameful. Um, so uh, that was that. As for... Um, what did you say? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? Just how the question of caste and the meaning of caste would have changed uh, from generation to generation and how you experience it in relation to your mother, your uncle, and of course, your grandparents. Yeah. Um, in my grandparents' time, they went to school. They were the first generation to go to school. They went to missionary schools. And they got jobs as teachers. And they thought themselves to be, you know, moving upward, uh, only to be reminded that they might be educated, they might be teachers, but they're still untouchables. So there, is, there was an incident where my grandmother was wearing a nice sari on Christmas Day. So the caste people insulted her, like, why is this untouchable bitch wearing a sari? So she ran home and told her husband what happened. Um, so the whole untouchable colony uh, decided that they can't, they, you know, it's, it's time that they stop taking this nonsense. So they went and asked the village elders, you know, you should apologize to our teacher. And the caste people said, uh, no apologies. You should learn your le lesson and remember where you belong. And uh, that was their experience. They thought that they were moving upward, but they were reminded violently that they were still untouchables. And in my mother's generation, as you know, uh, they had caste friends, but they had problem finding housing and uh, there are some caste teachers that insulted her and all of that stuff. Um, in my generation, my parents never told us that we were untouchables. They thought that their education and their job will kind of like cover it up. Um, so why tell the children that we were untouchables? Uh, and even when it was necessary to mention caste names in some, uh, on some occasion, they would use um, acronyms. Uh, she would say MLA, means Mala. 
Mala is one in the, um, untouchable sub-community. And they would say MD as if he's a doctor, but what they meant is he's Madiga, the uh, untouchable community that removes dead animals. So for us, uh, it was shameful to think of ourselves as the Christians, all that stuff. And whenever people asked us, we would say we're Christians. And after I grew up and I became part of the Radical Students Union, I would say, I don't believe in caste. I'm a communist. But whenever you say these things, it's obvious to them that we're untouchables. Because if I was a Brahmin, I would proudly say I'm a Brahmin, right? So all of these excuses that you're a Christian and you're a communist immediately tells them that you're an untouchable. Um, that's our experience. But I mentioned this massacre in a village called Karmchedu, right? Uh, there, the massacred people were um, untouchables and Christians, and their children went to school, and yet they were massacred. And people like us, the Christian Dalits, could no longer hide from ourselves. You know, we, we could no longer say to ourselves, oh, we are different, we're Christians now, we're educated now. We are untouchables. So that changed in my family. My parents, who were not able to even, you know, utter the name of the community, are now telling people we're untouchables. Mm. No. So what did that knowledge, given that you were shielded for mm. a, a large part of your life, to some extent, even when you knew in the, some of the stories you were telling, what did that newfound knowledge do for you? How did it change the, the course of your life and your identity? I can tell you uh, when my sister was very young and my parents didn't tell us what we were, she went to somebody's house and they said, oh, you know, you are Mala, they said. And she came home crying and Asked my mother, they said, we're malas. Tell me, mother, we're not malas. Tell me, please tell me we're not malas. She knows that mala is something not good. And she didn't want to be a mala. Um, so that, has, that was her reaction to find, uh, when she found out that we're um, malas. Uh, being young, she cried and uh, begged my mother to say we're not malas. And for me... Um, I don't know, I mean, like uh, the Ambedkarite movement started and there are a lot of Dalits uh, who spoke militantly and uh, identified them proudly as untouchables. I didn't identify my, myself proudly as untouchable, but I remember it's a very uncomfortable question. People ask you what caste you are. Uh, I was in a plane and uh, this girl asked me what caste you are. I said, I'm an untouchable, you know, and it felt great that I didn't have to squirm and rake my brain to come up with some kind of, you know, um, excuse not to reveal my caste and things like that. And knowing, the, knowing that we're untouchables made me uh, bold enough to probe into this thing, you know, uh, I was ready to find, you know, face whatever I, I, I would find out. 
Thank you so much, Sujata. I just want to let our audience know that the floor is open for questions and you can feel free to put those questions in the box. You know, I, I want to just take a moment to, to pivot to America and to the American question, because I think one reason that the book has been received in the way that it has been received is also because of a discussion of race that is happening now in a totally new way. And we see yeah. again and again these kind of intertwined debates, dialogues on the on the question of caste and race. I know you yourself have written about this. I read a recent piece that you wrote in New Left Review yeah. in response to Isabel Wilkerson's book, which you know my students have read and many students on this campus have read. I wonder if you could say a, a bit about the caste race question and how how you see it as an analytic as valuable as problematic uh if you remember in the book there was uh, uh joe lewis a boxer a black yes. boxer my um uncle was only 17 but when he heard about him he wrote about it he didn't know that anything about America. He didn't even know what sport he, he, you know, he was good at. But he had this intuitive feeling, like a uh, gut feeling that he's oppressed. I'm oppressed. So we must be, you know, kin. Uh, that kind of a thing is there a lot among untouchables. When they see uh, Black people, they immediately identify with them. Uh, nobody were, you know, these people, they didn't know about racism in America, any of that. But when they saw, saw Serena Williams and Venus Williams, it was great for them, you know. So it's kind of like gut feeling that there is some kind of kinship. But there's actually, a materially, there is a reason why the two groups are similar. Because uh, in America, uh, black people were uh, slaves and uh, uh, their occupation was limited to that, that kind of work. And it's their economic role during slavery uh, in a pre-capitalist pre era. That did, and it's hereditary, you know, generation after generation, you're slaves. That means that your children are inheriting, you know, your your occupation. That is what is called caste. Caste is where your occupation is, uh, you know, it's you can only do this job, nothing else. Um, that kind of thing is called caste, and it's the same with India also. There are some middle castes like carpenters, weavers, potters, goldsmiths. Uh, it's generation after generation, they do the same thing. So in that sense, you know, India is a caste. So because they share this uh, thing that their occupation was hereditary and uh, the economic role is fixed, um, is what makes us look similar. Mm. So in the piece in New Left Review, you have some questions about Wilkers, Wilkerson's analysis and also of this kind of easy linkage between caste and race. So I think you say that, you know, her use of this terminology of caste 
in the metaphysical sense in which she uses it, reflects a kind of liberal pessimism. I wonder if you could just say more about what you were thinking here. I, as I was reading the piece, I was thinking that one of the problems you are gesturing to is the way that, you know, a simple caste race alliance might foreclose other kind of material or class possibilities for connection. Uh, can you uh, please uh, explain what you said? Yeah, I was thinking as I was reading your piece that some of the questions and questions that you have about Wilkerson's book and about yeah. this easy kind of caste race analysis mm -hmm. are coming from, you know, a more materialist Marxist analysis that in fact, yeah. Wilkerson's kind of metaphor of caste or metaphorizing of caste is gesturing yeah. to some larger problem or some bigger problem that we have to address. Yeah, well, um, uh, as I, as we wrote in the review, uh, caste has been, you know, race has been compared to caste uh, from very old times, like uh, when there was civil war, uh, some people uh, called it a caste because, um, you know, uh, this is... They were saying it in a bad way, that caste is a bad thing. It is limited to backward countries like uh, India, but we're a progressive country and we're having a civil war. And so we're getting rid of the caste quality of racism. Uh, and afterwards, during civil rights movement, also they didn't like to be compared to caste because of the negative connotations. Um, But now, uh, I mean, so those two instances were positive uh, allusions to caste that we no longer will be like this, right? But in Wilkerson's bringing out caste again, uh, it's not positive, it's negative. Because, because she was, she's not a Marxist, she doesn't have materialist explanation of caste. Mm. For us, um, Marxists, we look at economic uh, structures, economic relations of people, and that's what determines caste. For her, it boils down to bad white people's ideas. Caste mm. is all because of some white people want to feel superior to somebody, and it cannot be changed. So that's a pessimistic, uh, you know, uh, view of caste. Um, and then uh, they also put uh, the blame on poor whites. It's the poor whites who, uh, who are racist and uh, it's the poor whites, uh, you know, lynchings and all of that stuff. But she, uh, she, uh, she does not mention that there was a lot of state um, intervention to uh, promote racism, like all the Jim Crow laws. It's, it didn't come out of somebody's head. It's the government laws themselves promoting racism. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, uh, her view of comparing race to caste is pessimistic because it's 
ingrained in their white people's uh, brains, there is no possibility of getting rid of racism, you know. You know, the book, for me, it's very interesting that the book has received the kind of acclaim that it has and that it's circulated in the way that it has. And I think one thing that is emerging is that caste has really become a problem and a rubric to think about in America. And there are so many ways in which this has emerged from the textbook scandal in California or the, you know, the questions about including the question of caste in textbooks in, in yeah. the California case. Of course, the Cisco case in which you have discrimination on the basis of caste asserted by a tech worker. And most recently in the case of this temple scandal in which workers have been abused in the building of this temple in um, New Jersey. So I think caste is emerging in America in a new way. I, in the news discursively as a metaphor maybe you can say a word about you know your experience of castes in america uh, after well, all this uh, when i first came here uh, i only had my classmates and i didn't know anybody else and uh, uh, they were not very nice to me uh, so the first chance i got i ditched the indian circle and uh, formed a new a new French circle who are not Indians. Um, oh, uh, I used to work at the Bank of New York, um, and there were two cashiers there. Uh, after buying food, I would hand her the money, and she would always say, put it on the counter, put it on the counter, don't hand it to me. Hmm. So she knows that I'm an untouchable, and she doesn't want to touch me, you know? Um, my sister, on the other hand, had very, very, very bad experiences. Uh, she's a doctor, and while she was a resident, they would have weekly uh, seminars, and all of them would sit around the table, and when they were waiting for the main person to come, this girl said, okay, let's go around the table and tell your cast. Let's tell, you know, what cast you belong to. Because she knows when my sister's turn comes up, she would have to say untouchable, you know. Uh, and her children who were born here also um, still face, um, you know, uh, caste discrimination. I think it's the first generation Indians that bring caste to America and any live connection with India then caste survives. Mm. But after the first generation, uh, the children go to universities, they meet progressive people, and they won't ca care about caste. Uh, but the first generation of India's, Indians care a lot about caste. And all these immigrant associations, um, ostensibly to celebrate your culture, are actually caste associations. Uh, for example, I come from Telugu-speaking Telugu area, and all Telugu people should have one immigrant association, but there are several of them. Why? Because one is uh, dominated by Kamas, and the other one is by Redis. Uh, another one was by Kapus, like that. And if untouchables have 
a Dalit immigrant group, then we're like putting a target on ourselves. Like, oh yeah, we are untouchables, harassers, you know, mm-hmm. discriminators. So untouchables mm-hmm. never have their own associations. Um, mm-hmm. And this caste exploitation, like in the temple, is going on. This is the only one instance where they were exposed. But there was an incident where they brought like children, the 12 and 13-year-old girls. Uh, they told the immigration that they're their nieces and they brought them and it was sex trafficking with the children. They were untouchable children. And that case came out because one of the girls died because of uh, carbon monoxide. And mm-hmm. these people uh, neatly uh, wrapped her body in a carpet and they were putting it, putting her in the cap, you know, in the back of the car. And this other girl was standing there and crying. And the neighbors saw feet t- sticking out of the carpet. It was them that uh, reported and it was exposed. So caste is uh, here in America from the most cruelest uh, forms to, you know, mm-hmm. just verbal harassment. Hmm. I I do remember this case. I think this was a California case in Northern California. I I just want to pick up on a question by a student. Um, Can you speak more about your decision to be a conductor on the subway system? (laughs) I knew it was coming. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Um, I used to, I I used to work in uh, software uh, for Bank of New York. Uh, When, I mean, actually, there are a couple of factors why I was fascinated with the job. One is I always wanted to do things that uh, are supposed to be not for women. Like, for example, in my hometown, girls would, would not ride bike. Uh, mm-hmm. I learned it. I was the first one to learn it. Uh, and then when city buses come, uh, boys always used to, wait until the bus started already and they would run and catch the bus. That's the thing they used to do. And I would do that. I always wanted to be, uh, you know, if they can do, why not me? And so working for trains as train crew is like that for me, that Mm. I have taken up a job that's traditionally considered male job. Uh, Mm. That's one thing. And the second factor is, you know, I'm a Marxist and, you know, we venerate working class and to be a worker is a very romantic notion for me. Uh, That was one thing. And the third thing is um, when I was working in the bank, I had no idea what I was doing, who it is for, how they use it, none of it. Somebody tells us to write programs and we we write them. So what my work product is doing is not apparent to us, but working on a train, we know very well that we are the ones who move the city, you know, like millions of people uh, ride subways. Without us, they won't go to work, right? Mm. Um, In 2005, there was a strike only two or three days during uh, uh, the holiday season. The Wall Street shut down because there were no subways. So we know 
how essential we are. And we know, <laughs> you know, our power. So that's another consideration that, uh, you know, working on the train and taking people makes us, you know, it gave me a lot of self-confidence that I, I lacked before. Yeah, mm. I'm the one taking these people, you know. Mm. The essential worker. Yeah. So there's a question here. I'll just read it. Uh, forgive me for my ignorance of caste. Is the caste system still in effect today in India? Can you marry outside of your caste? In America, I don't see it like racism because if one is born into a poor family in the U.S., through their own abilities and hard work, they can move up into a successful life. Yeah. Uh, caste is very much operative in India. In 1950. Uh, they outlawed untouchability, uh, but it made no difference at all. And in the 1970s, they made violence against untouchables or any harassment a crime. Uh, it's called the SCST Atrocities uh, Act. It's the uh, same as hate crimes um, law here. And uh, no one, I mean, it's hardly ever anybody gets punished uh, with that thing. And even that, this prime minister wants to get rid of, you know, even though it's uh, in practice, it, it's like a toothless law. Uh, he still wants to, um, you know. Um, and the next part of the question, I'm sorry. She uh, said, and uh, yeah, it's still operative. And uh, the one of the things that sustains caste is prohibition of intercaste marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, if you marry from outside caste, then the caste line becomes blurred. So to maintain different castes separate from each other, uh, intercaste marriage is forbidden, and that's the cornerstone of caste system. Mm -hmm. uh, and this, in turn, what it does is Put, puts a lot of uh, uh, restrictions on women because women cannot choose what, who, who they want to marry. And that is the reason why um, Indian women face more oppression than, say, for example, American women or, you know, other women. Mm -hmm. uh, and even now, every year, there are 1,000 cases of honor killing, um, killing of men, uh, girls and boys who married intercaste, um, they don't care. Uh, e even their own children, they kill them. Uh, there was a case, case in Karnataka. Uh, this girl was in love with uh, a untouchable boy. They tried to persuade her. She'd, she wouldn't. And finally they said, okay, we agree to it. Come home. We'll discuss the wedding plans. And when they went, when she went there, they gave her, her mother, her own mother gave her orange juice uh, laced with poison. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the girl uh, died an agonizing death for, for six hours. Uh, she was in pain. And mm -hmm. then uh, when she died, the father, the uncle and the mother uh, took her and buried her. Uh, mm -hmm. And they felt very proud about it because you know, it's for him, it's like I sacrificed my own daughter for the sake of our caste, you know. So he's seen as a hero. And when the police came, he was very proud of it. And that's the state of caste, uh, um, you know, 
how hard caste is in India even now. And as scarcity gets worse, it gets even you know bad for untouchables. So given these um, horrible stories and atrocities, I mean, I, I was thinking the other day of a young woman whose family has been boycotted because she picked a flower in an upper caste man's oh. field. Mm-hmm. You know, are there areas of hope that you see for Dalits in India's democracy, given elections, given reservations, given other kind of structures, even toothless ones like the Prevention of Atrocities Act? Where do you see room for movement, for action, for possibility? Okay, uh, caste is a social structure. Uh, It doesn't have anything to do with uh, religion. Uh, It doesn't matter how many laws you have, how many um, policies like reservation policies you have. As long as the structure is intact, none of this will work. And Mm -hmm. caste structure is still there in the countryside where untouchables are made to work for below, uh, you know, minimum wages and they extract maximum labor from them. And when they object, they would say, you're an untouchable. You were born an untouchable. This is your duty. It is in the uh, Hindu text. Uh, You should not complain. And if you complain, we're going to punish you. So um, as long as this agricultural, backward agriculture is there, which requires cheap labor, the caste will persist. And no number of laws or anything or reforms can do anything for untouchables. And the only hope is that the society be uh, restructured on a collective basis. That's the only hope, you know. So we have two questions that are exactly pertaining to what you are discussing. So one student writes, thank you for this incredible talk. As a Marxist, how do you think that the communist and leftist movement in India could more adequately address the question of caste? How does one find a balance between emphasizing class analysis and a critical analysis of caste? And then Mm -hmm. someone else is actually asking, what about caste and capitalism? Isn't it possible to argue that capitalism has done for some Dalits things that Marx absolutely could not do. We have Dalit capitalists and Dalit entrepreneurs who have broken the shackles of caste. Uh, I'm sure this person is, uh, you know, uh, uh, someone who believes that uh, this can be remedied through, uh, you know, parliament elections and policies and things like that. Um, uh, how many Dalit capitalists are there? What mm. percent of Dalits were able to take advantage of reservations and move up? It's less than 2%. Less than 2% of Dalits were able to use reservations, get education, and um, get jobs. And as for Dalit capitalists, it's not even 2%. It's probably some fraction of a percent, you know? And um, so this is really not, you know, these things don't work. These, these, these things that they give us, the reservations and all of that, they're like a boat with a million holes in them, you know? Um, it doesn't help us. Um, 
probably for somebody who was able to move up, it seems from his world that, yeah, things are changing. But look at, uh, you know, uh, the, the girl who was killed in UP, gang raped and mutilated, her tongue cut off. Uh, what about that? That happens all the time. And recently, uh, a Dalit man was lynched brutally. Uh, near Delhi, that happens. There is the Dalit man who asked for his wages and he was scalped. And all of this are happening and they're actually like increasing uh, in violence and uh, incidents. So how could you say that these things worked? Um, there was a brief period after independence where people were able to use reservations. Now it's not possible with privatization because private sector is not obliged to give reservations to reservations in jobs. So it's getting worse. Uh, it's, it's completely um, meaningless to say that these things are working mm -hmm. unless you're sitting among people like yourself who are able to go to college. Uh, others don't see it that way. So, Sujata, what about going back to the previous question, which is really how it's possible for leftists and for Marxist movements to reckon with uh -huh. caste in a just yeah. way? Yeah. Okay. You know, as we said, uh, race and caste, uh, they uh, share this common feature that hereditary economic role in pre-capitalists, right? So you can ask the same question about race too. Like, uh, why is still race there even when it's not pre-capitalism, it's capitalism? Um, anyway, I'm digressing. Um, the, as for the Marxist and communist movement in India, uh, all of them are casteist. They're, these uh, big parties never had and untouchable in the leadership. Uh, even after being pointed out, they, just, they still don't do it. Uh, and it's not one party and, uh, you know, it's not like that. It's uniformly all, all communist parties in India are casteist. That is because, um, take for example, the Maoist, their program is based in villages and uh, their, you know, their cadre uh, come from both Dalits, landless peasants, and um, pe peasants with some land. And whenever there is a conflict, the, the upper caste landed comrades prevail over untouchables. And so this very program of, uh, um, you know, revolution uh, from villages through guerrilla path, um, it's... Uh, you know, it structurally, it, uh, um, you know, fosters uh, caste. Mm. And the class and caste, uh, people say, Marxists, some Marxists say, oh, you know, this is only class. There is no, uh, we don't care about caste. Uh, once the class question is solved, uh, caste question automatically leaves. Uh, but uh, that's vulgar Marxism. Uh, Marxism doesn't, it, it's not like that. And caste is, in a way, a, 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 a product of class because uh, it depends on the economic role. 
Um, so it's a it's a special oppression, uh, class oppression plus this caste oppression, and uh, unless the caste oppression is taken up by the workers, they won't succeed in their struggles. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and unless Dalits take the um, support of the workers, they won't get anywhere because. Um, Oh, okay. So anyway, so the the program forward is that you should draw untouchables, Dalits, into the party and into the leadership roles. And whenever there is a caste atrocity, you must actively uh, fight it and show um, that you you don't just say, you know, this is just class. We will wait until the classes. So for Marxists, they, they have to be involved in class struggle, but at the same time, they have to show that they are fighters against uh, caste oppression. And so wherever there is such thing, they should fight it. That's the only way. Mm. So I, I just want to ask one last question because we're coming to a close here by a student, which clearly takes us back to the writing and the, the tremendous work of putting together the material for this uh, autobiography and family biography. She says, what was the process about, uh, how was the process of writing a family memoir? What was it like working directly with your family in unearthing their histories? And what kind of challenges did you face? The central most point of writing this, uh, the way to write it, is taping the conversations. Mm. Uh, record the stories. That's like the most important part of writing a biography or autobiography. Um, and uh, because also with the tape, you don't just uh, know the words that they said, but how they said it, and you could include that. And um, then, um, you know, I think that when you write biography or autobiography, you can't just write about yourself. You have to make some connection with things around you. Mm. For example, the independence movement, like you could talk about... uh, I think we have lost Sujata. Let's um, give it a moment. Sujata, you're back. Can you hear us? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about <laughs> that. Uh, well, at least you've come back in time for you know for us to thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming today, for reading from your book, for talking about your life experiences. There were many other interesting questions that we didn't get to. Questions about reservations, questions about caste in other communities, questions about subaltern studies and historiography. Uh, unfortunately, we're not able to get to them tonight, but we're very very glad to have you with us at New York University Abu Dhabi. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Good night. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.